Okay, so Dan Lola is going to come and do our reading for us. Yeah, let's give her a big round of applause. Psalm 8. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet. All flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Let's give her a round of applause again. Amazing. Okay, so my name is Anna. If we've never met before, I'm part of the team here at KXE. And we're continuing our series called Truth and Life. What does the Bible have to do with life today? And um, we're basically giving space to explore this book, the book which the church over many centuries and centuries have, set, have gone to as the primary source of revelation to find out who our God is. And um, we all have different kind of uh, experiences of the Bible, but I vividly remember when I became a Christian when I was 18 that um, I actually had quite a difficult relationship with this book. I remember thinking, gosh, I've fallen in love with this man, Jesus, but does it also mean when I read this book, I just have to switch my brain off at points? And there was also quite a source of shame because I would go into church and the preacher would say, right, why don't you just turn to like Job and everyone just kind of flick open really naturally because they just knew it. They knew like rhymes about the order of the Bible. It's like, ugh. And then I'd, I'd go onto the contents page and I'd be like, I can't see Job. I can see a job, but I can't see a Job. And then the preacher would say something like, and of course, we all know the story of Esther. And I was like, well, I don't know the story of Esther. So it was kind of this source of shame. But I have to say, like, over, over the years, shame gave way to hunger. And I can honestly say that this book has become one of my friends. It's become a close companion. It's my source of comfort. It's my source of encouragement. And um, I've learned that I don't have to switch my brain off. I kind of decided, like, I've got to start somewhere. I might as well just get into this book. And I got into it. And I've kind of, um, I want to say this as an encouragement. For those of you who feel like you might have to switch your brain off when you read this book, or it is a source of shame, like, just keep going. I've kind of now got to a point where the questions I have don't terrify me, but actually they feel like an opportunity to discover more. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to do look, is look at this book and um, kind of almost like give us a confidence, a fresh confidence in this word. And Pete James started the series, like, looking at the reader, who we are. Like, when we come to read this book, what are we bringing to the text? And then Tyler spoke last week about the library of um, the Bible, that this isn't just one book, it's actually a series of books, and kind of understanding that. And today I'm talking about the story, the overarching narrative of, the, um, of Scripture, and one of the intimidating things about the story is that it's so vast. It's like, where do you even begin? And I hope, I hope that by the end of the talk, I'm going to help in some way to give a framework. But my heart is that we would hear the heartbeat of Scripture, that, that God would illuminate in us the heartbeat of this narrative. And I want to pick up where Tyler kind of finished off last week. He gave us the encouragement to eat this book. 
in uh, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and also John in Revelation, are told to eat a scroll which has the word of God in it, to consume it. And Tyler was saying, like, consume this story. Let it become part of you. Get it so deeply in your system that it actually affects and impacts you. It becomes part of who you are. And the invitation of this book is not just to read it as a storybook, but to consume it. So much that it becomes part of you and it forms how you see the world, the way in which you live. Because stories are incredibly powerful, aren't they? Stories have a real potential. Narratives have a potential. A good story writer, a good storyteller are totally and utterly captivating. They do more than just simply retell informations and facts. They kind of engage your mind, your emotions, and your desires. A good story will challenge the way you see the world, and they illuminate things that you might have missed in the past. Stories are incredible because they can be accessible, they can be enjoyed by young and old. People from all different walks of life, strangers can sit and listen to the same story and it can connect with them all in the same way. Stories have that power to build connection and inspire and I just love that feeling of when I'm totally absorbed in a story and it transfixes me, when my mind's racing, my emotions are engaged. But not all stories are created equal. There are seductive stories of escapism where we actually begin to learn to like actually leave the world behind. These aren't stories that help us live better in the world. They help us escape it and numb the pain of real life. We can be sold fantasy stories of simplicity where we get permission to basically ignore the complex and difficult, inconvenient details of life. And sadly, stories have been used to weaponize and manipulate. They've been used for propaganda to marginalize and demonize. Stories are incredibly powerful. And Eugene Peterson kind of points out the obvious, that the Bible, this book, is a narrative. And he says the way the Bible is written is every bit as important as what is written. It's a capacious story, a a spacious story that pulls you into the plot. And it shows your place in its development from beginning to end. And that's good news for us. That's such good news for us because it means there's space for us in this story. That whoever you are, you have an invitation to be pulled into this story. Not just to learn about the Bible so you can answer Bible questions. But actually this book is written to elicit a response from the reader. And so this story comes with a warning. This isn't going to be a story that allows you to escape the world. It's a story that is designed, to be, is, is designed to be read to help us live better in the world. This is a story that doesn't gloss over the hard bits of life. When we read this book, we are confronted with some of the best and the worst bits of humanity. And therefore, the worst and the best bits of ourselves. This isn't a story that's designed to manipulate. In fact, the whole way through the narrative, you see that God gives us a scary amount of freedom to humanity. And I believe that if we read this story, if we eat this story, if we eat this book, allow this narrative to pull you in, to be the anchor for your life, then I believe that this story has the the power to transform your story. As human beings, we are narrated beings. Throughout our lives, we have personal experiences, and they become personal stories. And sometimes those stories then form the narrative of our lives and the way in which we see and interact with the world. Say, for example, um, you're a little girl. This isn't a story about me. And you're in the playground playing kiss case. And a boy rejects you. It might lead you to the narrative that actually you're never going to put yourself out there ever again. Danny Beard, I'll never forgive you. 
I'm joking, I was quick, I caught him. Um, <laughs> personal experiences become a personal story and they can lead to, um, they, can, they can become narratives by which we live our lives. But I believe if we soak ourselves in this story, if we find our place in it, we make it our dominant narrative at the core of who we are, it has the power to disrupt those old narratives that have formed us, that have limited us and established a new way of living where we, we realize that the most true thing about us is that we are loved. And more than that, I believe that this story has the power to change communities. Neither revolution nor reformation can ultimately change a society. Rather, you must tell a powerful, te- a new powerful tale, one so persuasive, one so persuasive that it sweeps away the old myths and becomes the preferred story. One so inclusive that it gathers all the bits of our past and our present into a coherent whole. One that even shines some light into the future so that we can take the next step. If you want to change a society, then you have to tell an alternative story. You know, as a community, as a church, if we root ourselves in this story, I believe our attitude to London, to King's Cross, will be different. We'll see it not as it is, but we'll be able to see the inherent goodness that God has put within it. We won't be put off by its brokenness. We won't be scared by that. Rather, we'll be consumed with the possibility of redemption. And why will that happen? Well, because this is a story that's fundamentally about redemption. Where nothing that is too broken, it can't be healed. No history that is too shameful, that it can't be restored. And that there isn't an inch of creation that God cannot make new. And I pray that as we begin to look at this narrative, not just tonight, but as we go away and read it and soak ourselves in it, I hope that faith begins to rise in you. I hope that your imagination is sparked with the possibilities, that the old narratives about yourself, about the people around you and about our communities won't define your engagement. But how do we begin to engage with this narrative when it can seem so daunting? The Bible is an epic, and by that I mean it's seriously long. I don't know if you've ever watched the, the Baz Luhrmann film, Australia, but I watched it, and um, I love Baz Luhrmann, but I watched it, and I felt like, like it kept on ending, and then a new storyline would pop up, and then it kind of happened a few times, like it's a serious epic film, and I, it got to the point where I was like, I have no idea what is going on in this film, and sometimes I think that's what happens with the Bible is we can feel like it is, there is this broad narrative that goes over it, but there's also these different subplots, and we can find ourselves lost in it. So on a really practical note, it's helpful, just as we're reading this book, it's helpful to familiarize yourself with the timeline of the Bible, so that when you come to read this section, when you open it up, you know where you're fitting, what's come before it, and what's about to come after it. It will make so much more sense when we do that. And I was going to go through the whole timeline of the Bible, but I decided um, the talk would be too long if I did that. However, I'd already written this, done the slide for it, and the slide is so fancy. It's got different colors in it and everything. It's above the line, below the line. So I thought you had to see it, so I put it up there. Um, and I don't want to spend lots of time here, but I just want to just point out, um, kind of signpost you to two really good resources which might help you kind of track some of the timeline stuff. And the first one is The Bible Project. It's a website. It's got loads of videos. It's got podcasts. And um, they often do like little videos about a book, and it can just explain who the author is or where it fits into the story. It's really, really helpful. The other thing, and um, what I use is a book called The Bible Book by Book. And um, whenever I start a new um, 
a new book in the Bible, I'll just flick it open. It's a couple of pages about each of the, the books in the Bible. It tells you who the author is, what's going on around it, what are the main themes, etc. And there are pictures. And I love a picture. So um, it's, I encourage you to have a look at those two things. And I'm going to come back to that broad narrative of redemption. But before I do, I want to put pause Because every single story, every good story, has a central character around who the plot revolves. And so far in this series, we've kind of actually been thinking about ourselves a lot. We've been thinking about ourselves as the readers. Um, When we come to the text, what are we bringing to it? Um, And last week, looking at the library, again, it's like, how do we engage with the text? We've kind of been the focal point up until this point. And I think sometimes we actually just need to stop and remember something that's really, really simple. That while we are aware of what we're bringing to the text, actually, to really let this narrative, this story transform you, we have to accept that we are being pulled into its story. We're not pulling it into our story. And we are being pulled into a story where we are not the central characters. And if we look at my lovely timeline again, if I was going to waste a bit more of my time, I could have gone and put different names of people that appear Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Rachel, Moses, Miriam, Aaron, David, they pop up. They play significant roles in the story, in this epic. They all have their subplot. They touch and they change the narrative as it goes along. But sometimes, some of them aren't even mentioned ever again. And while each of those characters are significant, they're not the central character. They play the supporting roles, even within their subplot, to the central character around whom the whole narrative finds its place, and that person is Jesus. And I'm going to be careful not to stray into John's talk next week, but I just wanted to make crystal clear that this central character is God, is God's epic story. And there's something about when we step back from all the different subplots of this narrative, it gives us perspective. And it sounds so simple, but so often in day-to-day life, this is the thing that we forget, that this whole thing is about him. When I consider your heavens and the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars, that you've set them in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? I said at the beginning, this story, if we grasp it, will help us live more fully in the world. And if we just take this one point, that he is, the central narr- he is the central character of this whole entire thing, if we, let, if we ruminate on that and we let that get into our systems, if we let the story remind us that he started this whole thing, all that we see has been made by him and he's going to be the one that brings it to its glorious conclusion. If we just focus on that, we'll begin firstly to realize that we need to take ourselves a little less seriously. I think it's good for us to sometimes step back and realize our lives are but a breath in the grand scheme of things. And you begin to realize that when we're in our hurried and busy lives where we're just trying to um, kind of almost big up our own significance, wrapped up in our own stories, it's almost quite hilarious when you think of it in this perspective. Because the story is not about us. And that is good for someone like me who wants to big up my insignificance. And there's a lot of freedom that comes from that simple point where we don't have to take ourselves seriously, that this whole long story has been unfolding long before we came onto the scene. But secondly, while it encourages us to take ourselves less seriously, it inspires us to take our lives seriously. Like we have been invited to partake in a subplot of his epic narrative. Like that is a humbling, a humbling invitation that we receive. 
We have all that has gone before us, all that the narrative says is ahead of us, but here we are in our time. And we have the opportunity to use our lives to be part of something of cosmological significance. That is huge. But if we put ourselves at the center of our stories, we will, te- we will end up living small lives, looking downwards, looking inwards. But if we dare to be drawn into a redemptive narrative, his redemptive narrative where he is the center of our subplot, we find that we become part of something so much bigger than ourselves. And we start living, looking up and outwards. The consistent thing in this, this, um, this story is his presence. It's his presence as the central character that runs right the way through it. In all its segmented parts, you will find his presence. And it's the presence of God that gives it, it this narrative its consistent heartbeat. It's the only way I can describe this story. It's like a heartbeat. It's like a consistent rhythm that goes throughout. Whether you're looking at Abraham or Moses or David or Esther or Jeremiah or the Gospels, there's a consistent rhythm, a consistent heartbeat that goes on and on. There's a steadiness to this narrative. And once you hear it, once you familiarize yourself with it, you can pick it up. And whatever story you're reading, you can hear that heartbeat. It's a little bit like broccoli. Like if you have a broccoli tree, a tree of broccoli, and then you break off a little floret, it still looks like a tree of bro- broccoli, a smaller version of the bigger thing. But then if you break off a little bit of the, the floret, it still looks like a smaller version of the bigger thing. There's a consistency to the shape of this narrative, and the small parts all reflect the whole of it. So that even if you go and read a little story, you can still hear the same heartbeat, the same consistent beat that goes right the way through. And at KXC, we tend to use this shape to describe the narrative of Scripture. scripture. If you've been at KXC a long time, you'll be familiar with this shape. But if you've joined in the last few months or the last few years, um, you might not actually know it as well. So I'm quickly going to go through it. But before I do, I just want to say two things. Um, the reason so many of us at KXC are familiar with this shape of Scripture and so familiar with the grand narrative of Scripture, I've heard people retelling it to other people using this, this thing, um, is because, and I'm not exaggerating this point, we genuinely have one of the world's best Bible teachers leading our church, who for the last 10 years has repeatedly taught this to our congregation. So it's embedded deeply into who we are and therefore informs everything that we did, we do. And just in case you don't realize who I'm talking about, I decided to Google his name into, put his name into Google and look for an image. Yes. <laughs> Apparently, Google doesn't know that he's the greatest Bible teacher because his name isn't number one. But they might when this gets released. Oh, hello. Coming to all good bookstores near you. Um, which actually is going to help my second point because um, I'm actually about to butcher his teachings by say, with him sat in the front row by kind of um, saying it in my own way, putting my own spin on it and trying to use non-Pete Hughes language. Kynos shall not be mentioned. <laughs> Either way, um, you may want to add... I said to the, um, the congregation this morning, I said you may want to add it to your wish list, but it turns out it's not out till, uh, till February, so Santa's going to have some troubles unless he's got a direct line to Pete. But this space, this story begins at God's initiative. On the first pages of this story, the creation narrative describes an initiative taking God, creating all that we see. And he makes it good and he really, really loves it. 
And he creates human beings fully part of that created order, but he gives them a special role and vocation within it. Psalm 8 says, You have made human beings a little lower than angels and crowned them with glory and honor. The, the word angels in the Hebrew is actually um, Elohim, and every other time it's mentioned in the Bible, it's actually translated as God. So it could be read, You have made them a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. You have made them rulers over the works of your hand and put everything under their feet. Psalm 115 says, The highest heavens belong to the Lord, for the earth he has entrusted to mankind. He has entrusted his work, his creation, to us. And there's two words in Genesis 1 which, um, which change everything when we think about us ruling and reigning. And it is these two words, image and likeness. And here they are tattooed onto my ankles because I'm a cliche. I'm a tattooed vegan with a nose piercing. <laughs> Though I'm not technically really a vegan because I had steak on Friday. <laughs> and roast chicken yesterday. <laughs> and a bacon sandwich. Watching the rugby. I'm the worst vegan ever. Uh, anyway, Salem and Demuth, image and likeness. These two words change everything because we weren't put on this earth to just to rule and reign as we see fit. Rather, we were commissioned with a royal task to rule and reign in the image and likeness of our creator. To steward and nurture this world as he would. We were put on here, this earth to be his hands and his feet. And who is he? He's the life giver. So we're invited to be co-creators, nurturing life, blessed to be fruitful. And so the story begins with God dwelling with humanity in perfect relationships and human beings being fully alive in his presence. And I just want to pause for a moment here, because when we think about this, like God, the central character of this whole story, creates and he likes it. He says it's good. And then he entrusts that creation to us. I don't know if you've ever given something precious to someone to look after, but my sister, um, she entrusts her kids to me all the time. She asks, and when she gives them to me, she expects me to love them and look after them as if I was her. And there are two things that are happening in my relationship with my sister there. First of all, and one is I'm being, she's giving me an incredible privileged, privileged position of responsibility. Like, and I have to feel the weight of that. But number two, my sister is making herself vulnerable to me as, and, and trusting that I'm actually going to step up. So God gave us a seriously privileged position with a lot of responsibility. And I do believe we should feel the weight of that, particularly when we turn on our news and see what's go, what we're doing to our earth. And when I say this story means that we should take our lives more seriously, that's what I mean. We should feel the weight of responsibility that he's trusted his creation to us. And also, the second point is God has made himself vulnerable to us and he's trusting us to actually step up. And I don't think we often consider that. His decision doesn't make him weak, but it does mean that what we do will affect him. But as you go through the story and you can see it, what we do clearly does affect him, we see a very emotional God and I, sometimes I don't think we quite know what to do with the emotions of God, partly because we just compare them to ours and our corrupted ways. But actually, his emotions are good and right emotions to the way we're acting. Because he chooses to let our actions affect him. 
And this is significant, particularly because as the pages roll on, humanity doubts that God is actually good, so they go their own way, using their freedom to define what is good and evil and making them the central characters of their subplot. And when humans abdicate their responsibility for care for creation in the, in the way in which God would do it, in his image and likeness, pain, sickness, suffering, and death enter the story. And you see creation unraveling. You see relationships splitting up. The relationship with God splitting up, relationship with one another splitting up, our relationship with creation splitting up. But God intervenes time and time again. He does it first through the calling of Abraham. He, he takes this family and says, well, I'm going to use you. You're going to be a vehicle of blessing to the nations. And that is a moment, a significant moment where God says, I'm going to go on a mission to bless my enemies. And I'm going to use humans to do it. It comes again through the giving of the law to, Mo- to Moses, where he says, I'm going to give you a way of living so that you can flourish and you will show other people what it looks like to flourish. And again, when David builds the temple, it's like the presence of God, that there might still be a place where the presence of God dwells on this earth. But even though God intervenes, even though he takes initiative again and again, still you see this rebellion from humans. And the question rings out at the end of the Old Testament, can anything be done to restore this rebellious spirit in humanity? And can anything push back the death that wreaks havoc on creation? And then the prophets start speaking about human beings having a new heart, the possibility that God might dwell in their midst again. And before I go into the next chapter of redemption, I just want to linger here on our rebellion. Because there's lots of metaphors that the Bible uses to describe how humans rebel against God. But I want to draw out one which I know will be very emotive. And that actually might be people in the room for whom this feels very painful and personal. And I want to ask um, that you'll stay with me if that's you. I want to ask that even if you don't know me, that you just trust me that my intention isn't to shame anyone. But I was reading um, Ezekiel 16 the other day, uh, which is one of the prophets telling a story. And this is an example of a little bit of broccoli that points to the whole bigger story. It's a bit of a micro story that kind of points to the macro story that's going on. And you know when you read something, it just fizzes in you, and it's like speaking to who, like deep, deep down. It's a story called The Faithless Bride. And the story goes, it's a, it's a parable about Israel as the bride in the story, but that could be, um, it could be very well be humanity. And God is the bridegroom. And the bridegroom walks past this woman, and this woman is rejected, and no one's interested in her. She's been hurt. So the bridegroom takes her in and he marries her. And the first thing that the bridegroom does is he tends to her injuries, caring for her. He gives her everything that she's clearly never had before. He gives her clothes, but not just clothes, he gives her the best clothes. It gives her a ring, a robe, and a crown. And when he gives her food, he gives her the best food that money can buy. And it's in this atmosphere of love, this bride starts to grow in beauty and status to the point that everyone else starts noticing her. And after a while, the bridegroom's head is turned and the love from the, bride, um, from the bridegroom isn't enough for her anymore. She wants more. And all the things that she's been given by him, the clothes, the jewelry, the food, the status, she starts to use to lure other men to her. And she sleeps with men and rejects the love that has been given to her. And this image of adultery um, is actually very raw for me as um, and my family.
because two years ago, my brother-in-law walked out on my sister and their two kids when they were one and four. And he was very much part of our family. He'd been part of our family for 14 years. I loved him very much like a brother. I was super proud of him. He was my buddy who I'd go and watch the rugby with. Um, and uh, he was like my ally in the family. And there was just no warning. It hit us out of nowhere. And he'd left because he'd started a relationship with another woman. And the pain that ripped through our family was devastating. This was someone we had trusted with our hearts. And we assumed that he would be part of our lives forever. And the last two years have felt like this constant grief. It's like I've lost someone that I really loved. But unlike when someone dies, you don't get the the comfort of the happy memories to look back on. It's like they're gone from your life, but actually they've tainted all the past and all the the happy memories. But my experience is nothing compared to my sister's. It's the rejection of the most brutal kind. It's the person who's promised that I'm going to be with you forever, who basically takes the love that you give them and says, it's actually just not enough for me. So the Bible uses very deliberately an emotive imagery to describe how we respond to God. And there's not a person in this room who can honestly say there have not been times when they've rejected the love of God. The gift of love and life that he's given us, when we look at it and say, actually, it's not enough for me, I want more. And that's why I can't stand in judgment of my brother-in-law or anyone else who's committed adultery. And when I was um, praying the worship earlier, I felt there's going to there's like two or three people here who you've um, actually committed adultery and you've, been, you've said sorry but it's actually been living with you and you still feel that it's, it's shaping who you are. And I just want to pronounce forgiveness over you that you are totally and utterly forgiven. You are totally forgiven. And I can't stand in judgment of my brother-in-law because I stand here knowing that I've wounded the heart of my God by rejecting his love. I may not have committed adultery, but I've certainly given my heart away despite his consistent love. Time and time again, when we promise God all our affection on the Sunday, but our lives tell a different story. Where we prefer the praise of people, success, comfort, safety, approval, power, whatever it might be, more than the love of God. And as I read the prophets like Ezekiel, Hosea, and Jeremiah, I hear the cry of a lover, of a lover who's been rejected. And while our lack of love never makes him deficient, he's never deficient because of it, it astounds me. It totally, utterly astounds me that God would make himself vulnerable to us. But that's the God he's chosen to be. He's chosen it, that that our actions would affect him. But what defines this story is not that we have rejected God, but what defines it is his faithfulness. The story in Ezekiel is called The Faithless Bride, but it really should be called The Faithful Bridegroom because, as I said at the beginning, this is his story. He is the central character in it all. This is not a story about our rejection, but it's about his redeeming love. And that's why it's good news. At the end of Ezekiel 16, the story finishes with this. So I, this is the bridegroom speaking to the bride. So I will establish my covenant with you, and you will know that I am the Lord. Then I will make atonement for all that you have done. He says to the faithless bride, I'll come and restore 
all the brokenness. I'll come and heal you again. I'll put right everything that you've done. And Ezekiel talks about the bride's mouth being shut up, silenced by the astounding love of the bridegroom. He comes and forgives all she has done, restores her and loves her still. That is the story of this book. That we follow a God who goes one step further than our failures every single time. And we're told that the end of the story is going to end with a wedding. It says in Revelation um, 21, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne room saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne says, Behold, I am making all things new. He said it to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. The last book of the Bible says that one day all the things that we've broken will be restored. And we will become the bride. We will become the spotless bride as he washes us clean and forgives us entirely. And that ending of the story is only possible because right in the middle of it, the most majestic and magnificent thing happens when the central character who's been forming and shaping the narrative, now becomes visible. And Jesus comes and he demonstrates what true humanity look like, looks like, what it means to be made in the image and likeness of God. He shows us what a true human being looks like. And then he takes on the forces of, um, of sin, which is our rebellion, and death, the consequences of our rebellion, at the cross. The two powers that have overwhelmed human beings as they've tried to live out their vocation, he defeats them in his resurrection. And then he shares the spoils with us. Power over sin, power over death. That any human that wants to come and have their, their vocation restored is welcome to come if they come and follow him. And behind each and every single segment of this story is a consistent heartbeat that moves the story along. It's the consistent heartbeat of a God who totally and utterly loves us. He created out of love. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son to come and redeem what we had broken. And one day we, there will be a marriage, a celebration of love. And this story invites you in to take your place. There's space for you, whoever you are. And there's a freedom and a choice that's presented to us. Who are we going to be? Who are we going to be in this story? Because God has chosen his role he will and always will be the faithful bridegroom. That's who he is right the way through the story, consistent in his pursuit of us, consistent in his generosity, consistent in his grace, consistent in his love. But we're players in the story too. We get a subplot in the epic, but who are we going to be? As writers of this segment of the story, how are we going to write it? We need to write it in a way that is coherent with what has come before us, but also aware of what we is to come. 
We need to be aware that actually that he, who God has made humans to being, that he's called us to be his image and likeness. We need to be aware that, that Jesus has defeated sin and death. Therefore, we can have total and utter confidence that when he says he can restore all things, he means it. And that's what we're living towards. So here we are in our story, part of this massive epic God's story, which is a narrative not about our rejection, but his redemption, his ability to restore. A story, if, the, if we let it become our dominant narrative, if we eat this book, if we consume this story, get it into our systems, we realize that we're part of something much bigger than ourselves. We realize that we have a really dignified role within it, that he's made us a little lower than God and crowned us with glory and honor, made us to be rulers and reigners. Reigners? Reigners? Can you say reigners? When we consume this story, we won't become defined by our failings, but by his redeeming love. And living this story looks like allowing God's recreation power to surge through us. Like he wants every single bit of you. Even the bits of you which feel broken beyond repair. He wants to come and wash you clean from guilt and shame. Even for the things that you think you've done which are unforgivable. And for all those things which have been done to you as well, he wants to come and restore. He wants to come and completely and utterly heal all the effects of of living in a broken world have had on us. And my encouragement to you is to let him do it. Let him do his work in you. Let him do whatever he needs to do. Let him recreate you. Because living in this story doesn't just like us being recreated, but actually we start to bring others into the same restoration and healing. Living this story looks like us taking our place again as rulers and reigners. It looks like us being his voice, his hands, his feet, his, um, using our gifts, using our stories to wipe tears from people's eyes, to push back death and darkness, to comfort those who are mourning, to heal the sick, to dismantle injustice, and to bring the lonely into family. That's what we're living towards. That's what we get to live out now. Because once again, God has entrusted us with his creation. He's handed the authority back to us, as it was always meant to be. When Jesus left, before he left in Matthew 28, he says to his disciples, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to us as we are entrusted again with this vocation. And this story doesn't promise us that life is going to be easy. But it does promise us that the central character, if we make him the central character in our lives, the author of the story himself, he is faithful. That he will forgive you again and again and again because that's who he is that he's the kindest encourager and your biggest fan. His generosity knows no limits. And he's able to do more than we can possibly dream or imagine. And he will never, ever leave or forsake you. At this point of our story, we have to realize that Jesus has entrusted us to be him on this earth. And Teresa of Avila has this um, beautiful poem which says, um, Christ has no body but yours, no hands, no feet on this earth but yours. Yours are the eyes through which the compassion of Christ must look on the world. Yours are the feet with which he walks to do good. Yours are the hands with which he blesses all the world. Yours are the hands. Yours are the feet. Yours are the eyes. 
You are his body. Christ has no body on this earth but yours. What a privileged role he's given us. And he trusts us to step up and to play our part in this subplot. And I believe what um, the response is for us to choose again to surrender our lives, to surrender our stories and say, Jesus, I want to make you the central character of my subplot. I want you to have control. I believe that you can rewrite my story. I believe you can rewrite the story of the people around me. And I can't do it on my own. I need you to lead and guide me. So I'm going to surrender my story afresh to you. And we need to make this choice again and again because following Jesus isn't just a one-time thing. It's a bit like a marriage that you have to choose daily to become faithful. And I know for I want to become, increasingly become a faithful bride to the one who is totally and utterly faithful to me. I want to increasingly become more in love with him, my heart to be centered and my affections to be on him, centered around the faithful bridegroom more today than I was yesterday, more in 10 years' time than I am today. And I know it's going to look like choosing to surrender my story again and again to him.